Yeah, I think much of who we become, um, if we consider that we're pursuing our deepest passion, which everyone should, then that's, I think, totally innate. I think we're born with that. Alrighty, team, here we are, 2019, a totally renewed podcast, and I'm feeling more invigorated than ever to deliver to you some pretty extraordinary guests. And no other and no more appropriate than to start the year with Eric Phillips, renowned polar explorer and polar guide. Eric has been on my to-do list for a very long time, but he's a pretty hard person to track down considering that since 1992, he's been exploring and guiding in the Earth's fragile polar regions. In fact, in just over a week's time, he's heading off again. Exploration appears to be at the core of Eric's instincts and uh, he's done some pretty extraordinary explorations from his inaugural 1992 expedition to Canada's Ellesmere Island right through to pioneering new routes through the South Polo and even kite skiing solo or alone to the iconic peak of Ulavatana. He has this urge to go where others haven't and to explore the path less travelled. And in his words, it is what drives him every day of his life. It's also his greatest fear that he could reach a time where he can no longer do what he loves to do. But Eric is driven in his guiding to help people to dream big, to live bigger and to begin. Because as he explains, there is, a, there is only failure in not starting something that is totally making your toes tingle. So today you're going to come away super inspired. I think we're all going to be wanting to get out there um, and join Eric on a trip. But I, before we get into it, I just need to thank the team at Find Your Feet, the business that I founded back in 2009. Find Your Feet is what gives me the opportunity to step away from the business and to pursue these conversations and opportunities such as our own Find Your Feet trail running tours and more recently our newly launched Find Your Feet expeditions. Um, it, it funds me to kind of do, do what I love to do and deliver this awesome information and education and inspiration to you. So if you have any opportunity to jump onto the Find Your Feet website, if you need any help for any of your adventures and dreams, we are there to help you at www.findyourfeet.com.au. We're also in the process of getting ready to launch our 2020, oh my gosh, 2020 trail running holidays and expeditions. So if you want to be on the list as the first people that we let um, to know about our new trips when we're ready to release them, we'd love to hear from you. You can get there through the Find Your Feet website or you can go to findyourfeettours.com.au and drop us an email. Don't forget too, the trail running guidebook is out there and pretty excited to sneakily mention that my new book, can't tell you too much about it yet, but my new book is currently with my editor. Okie dokie. All right. I think we're ready for Eric. Uh, Let's get into the conversation with Eric Phillips. The house is full of musical instruments, um, but my kids overtook me. Extraordinary. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like I just from like looking at your website and doing doing my homework, mm. like I just picked up 
someone who just loved to generally be outside and yeah. I, I didn't pick up that side yeah of the musical world. side I think yeah. it's actually reasonably rare because usually you know people who are so focused on outdoors and physical and all of that kind of stuff this, there's actually a word from I remember speaking to a psychologist about it years ago um, who was a friend and we just were, were in the car driving somewhere and it just came up and she said it's relatively unusual for someone to have that split between music and extreme outdoor stuff. Yeah, okay. You know, usually they're, if they're, you know, outdoorsy and physical and that kind of stuff, they don't They tend to lean on one hemisphere of yeah, your brain and not pick yeah, up on the other right. one. Yeah, Yeah, interesting. Uh, I find, like, I mean, I'm no artist by any stretch of the imagination, mm. but I just find the creative side of a painting, drawing, oh, right, okay. the podcasts, like, yeah, even just, here, yeah, yeah, like, it, just a little, I actually, oh, you do all that, really? yeah, we've only just been um, oh, moving wow. into this place, feel a bit yeah. blessed to be here, but, um, yeah, just finally set up the studio just over the last couple of days, and looking forward to getting some canvases out and just yeah, starting to get creative wow, again. Wow, that's amazing. But, um, yes. So again, that's relatively unusual, yeah, for the artistic yeah. and super physical. So side. when you come back from all your, like, I guess you're exploring and um, your guiding work, is that mm. something that kind of pops back out? or No, not, not really now. It's all a bit suppressed in some ways because business takes over mm. um, and you know there are so many other elements of my business that are really time consuming as well like the International Polar Gu- Guides Association mm. which I helped found some years ago that's another side that keeps me busy and then I invent and and manufacture equipment as yeah, well equipment. all yeah. that kind of stuff so um, but I listen to music all the time so that's my out. <laughs> well, I'm super excited to um, just to get to know you today. Graham oh. has raved about you. I think nice in so it. many ways, like I think he just really looks up to what you've achieved. And we had oh, this really nice. cool conversation around the dinner table last night when I was just throwing around some questions and concepts that I wanted to talk about with you. And one of the huge bits we were talking about is like how we admire someone who has just stayed in that guiding industry for Mm. so long and and especially because in Australia we tend to have this kind of mentality that guiding is that sort of thing that vagrants do that you do as a bit of a bum while you're Mm. at uni and you're wondering Mm. what what to do and so many of the questions that we always got was like you know what what do you want to do for your real career Mm. and like to see someone who not only stayed in the industry but has gone on to like set up some extraordinary sort of um, businesses around that. It's mm. pretty cool. Oh, um, good. So oh. I was hoping today, if you're happy, just yeah. to, to have a bit of a yak. Yeah. Um, and I guess what really often fascinates me is there's, well, there's probably two sides. There's the, um, the physical and the stories and, and everything that you can share around your guiding and your exploring and, mm. and also some of your other work. And we can tap into that. But... I'm glad you mentioned psychologist at the beginning because I'm I'm actually fascinated by the why we do things mm-hmm. and the psychology and the mental and um, especially when I think about polar environments, not that I've been mm-hmm. to any, but it just must be so challenging, not just for you, but also for any guests that you take into those environments. Yeah. So I was kind of hoping to tap into a little bit of that sort of enduring, enduring discomfort kind of concept yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so... I wouldn't mind delving into it, but I'm curious to know how long how long you're back for at the moment. Um, actually, I'm leaving 
Tuesday to go to the States, but that's just to give a talk. And then, yeah. and then I'm going to cruise around Yosemite bit for a little bit because I haven't been there. Um, and, um, and then I head off in March. Um, I'll be away for two months, my Arctic season, starting there, taking my daughter. So we're going to ski across with customers. Um, she'll be working with me as an assistant guide, trainee guide, if you oh like. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so we've got a group that will take across Valbard for nine days and then we ski to the North Pole with quite a large team. Wow. My daughter uh, co-guiding as well. Uh, that'll be another 10 days skiing the last degree to the North Pole and then uh, a, th- a second trip in Svalbard and then down to Cape Town for some sunshine. Yeah, okay. So how old is your daughter? 23. Okay. And is this... Is this sort of something that she sees that she wants to go on and, and do as well? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. So she's yeah. following in dad's footsteps. So she, uh, ever since she was young, you know, you could see that she had this love for the outdoors, love for pushing herself, uh, being physical. So she was all, she was my expedition partner, my, you know, my outdoors partner all through her growing up. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we went out as a family and, and stuff and, and did, uh, but, when, but when my son was born, then my wife couldn't come out so much because he was little and there was six years between my son and my daughter. Um, so Marty became my trip buddy, you know, <laughs> so we'd go out climbing, you know, when we were living in Victoria, I remember doing the cathedral mountains which is a three pitch climb actually i did have my wife out on that trip it was quite funny because we stood at the bottom of this pitch which is 150 meters or something this climb and marty was in her little harness she was five uh and i went up the first pitch you know anchored to the wall tiny little ledge and marty clipped in with her harness she was next to come up and then about 30 seconds later, I just had this yelling and screaming, no, let me down. It's like, what's going on down there? And then uh, there was an ant on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> so we flicked the ant off and then up she, you know, oh, scooted up the, up the cliff and, uh, and sat, next, sat next to me. And that was the first of three pictures. So, yeah, she was like always into it. And now she's completing a master's in education. She's done a degree in, in the outdoors and... She can't wait to start guiding. Yeah. And so do you think that she'll end up going down the guiding line in your industry or do you see her sort of probably working more in like the traditional Australian guiding industry, which is schools and private companies? Well, she's doing that already. So even though she hasn't finished her studies, she's getting a lot of work around Australia guiding for schools. uh, Well, actually mostly schools because that's her thing. She's now a qualified teacher. Teacher. uh, but she she wants to work in the business, so mm-hmm. she loves the cold. She she hates the heat like I do. So these temperatures we've been having here recently are <laughs> just intolerable for yeah. me and for her too. Um, so no, she loves anything sub zero, and uh, she can't wait. She can't wait to come to the Arctic with me hmm. uh, in another month or two. I was going to ask it a bit later, but um, it seems like probably a really good time now. I'm really curious to know how much of what you see in Marty is nature or nurture Mm. Um, and even with your son and his extreme musical skills because I guess like I look back at my childhood and the way I was brought up and going into elite sport and I think there was probably a harmony of both in there but um, a little bit of like encouragement from the parental side but but definitely like this drive within Mm. me and I'm 
curious to know what your thoughts are on that. That's, I think, totally innate. I think we're born with that. Um, and if we're clever parents, like my wife, at a very young age, could absolutely see where our kids were going. So she would then nurture what she saw as being within them already. And I could see that too, but I was away so much that, that I had less input into the parenting side of things. Um, you know, we then encouraged our children to become the people that we could see that they should become or, or, mm. or would want to become um, and would most easily become. Because if we pursue the thing that we love most, um, life will generally unfold much, much more easy, I think. Mm. You know, I really, um, not pity, that's not quite the, quite the right word, but, you know, uh, you know I, I see kids that are encouraged to go into fields that are clearly not their thing. You know, they're encouraged to become something simply because their parents are. And in some ways people could say, well, Marty's the same, she's kind of doing what you've loved doing and it's it's because I've loved doing what I'm doing mm-hmm. um, and she has that same genetic propensity to do what I she loves the cold she loves being outdoors she loves engaging with people in an outdoor environment and then we encouraged that when she was younger and now she's you know a gorgeous young happy person that can't wait to get on with life in the outdoors mm-hmm. whereas my son's entirely different and couldn't give a hoot about <laughs> the outdoors um, but he's got the musical side of me and my wife saw that from almost when he was a baby and encouraged that and, and he's now flourishing in a way that I just could not have imagined as a, as, as a musician uh, and he's only 17 and he outstripped my musical capability by the time he was 10 or 11 yeah. it's amazing to see so he has that concept of parenting of just sort of allowing allowing your kids to just run with what they love which is I think that is unusual personally because we I did you know trained in education and went through that whole system and it's so easy for kids to get boxed back into like go to uni get a degree do this do that and obviously they have but there is that sort of boxed mindset still around education so did that kind of concept of parenting come from your own upbringing or is it something that you sort of, it just came naturally to you as you became a father? Yeah, I think that came pretty much from my parenting. My mum and dad were very encouraging of time in the outdoors. I love the stories that my dad told to me when he was living in Europe. He grew up in Holland, as my mother did. Um, and I remember him, him telling me this story when I was very young, saying how he jumped on a bike and he cycled from Holland to Switzerland. And growing up, it's like, that's what I want to do. I want to <laughs> jump on a bike and ride from Holland to Switzerland. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. You know, and I did that when I was, <clears throat> oh, gee, I don't know, and maybe in my early 20s or late teens, I can't quite remember now, but... Um, um, and the journey was amazing and I saw all of the things that my dad would have seen along the way, albeit, you know, decades later and a lot of development and changes and uh, traffic and all of those kind of things. But um, it was a revelation to me uh, of a couple of things. One, that, my, that I had been encouraged as I've been encouraging of my kids to pursue little dreams, big dreams, whatever, um, and also that uh, my parents had become, you know, great role models for me and, mm. and that they weren't holding me back. 
um, they weren't discouraging me from being whoever I wanted to be, you know. And from a very early age, I knew that I was interested in education too, the outdoors. And originally that was phys ed, so I went into uni and studied phys ed and very quickly became quite bored of that and found outdoors as well, which was a kind of strand of phys ed back then, outdoor education. And that was in many ways an epiphany for me. It's like, this is it. (gasps) All of these other little things have directed me finally to this place. Uh, And that's where you've got to be a little bit lucky with your environment, that you've got the encouraging parents. You go to the right high school where you get little snippets of that. And then finally you land in the place where all of those stars align. What does that feel like? Like, I, I understand it conceptually and I think I've had moments in my life where I've felt this connection with exactly what I'm meant to do, but I think that there are a lot of people who just don't know what that feels like, who think, maybe this is it, yeah, yeah, I think this is it, you know, and I really enjoy it because my friends do it as well and... But what does it feel like in your soul that attracts you to that? Well, that's exactly the thing. It's the thing in the soul. You don't even think about it. You don't. It's like breathing. We breathe. Um, we're not even conscious of breathing. And and when I finally found what it is that I should be doing, it's like it's just so part of life. It's it's almost a uh, the extreme to a um, uh, a revelation. It's it's a, almost a revelation in slow motion. Suddenly, everything is just ingrained into you that you don't even think back that you were looking for something. It's just like, well, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing because um, I'm not frustrated about where I'm supposed to be going. I'm not frustrated that I'm studying something that doesn't really mesh with me. It's just like I am, I'm being, I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know if that makes oh, sense. Totally. No, it totally yeah. makes sense. And it's intoxicating. Like mm. I, yeah. And I think that's why I was so attracted to having a chat with you because I, I can see it in you. And I know that there must be such an element of that in the way you guide because in my experience from the trips that we do and my previous history as a guide, a lot of people do come on trips because they're looking for that life-changing adventure without even knowing that they're looking Mm. for it. And such a part of your role as a guide is not just to show them the landscape, although I love that side, but it's also to, I guess, show them the internal landscape and to learn to listen in, ask questions, um, and then communicate it with the team. So how do you negotiate that? Do you, how do you help people to take this love of what you do and help them to find what they love to do? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, and I've kind of pondered that in the past and you know what, I've almost given up trying to analyze why people come back and feel that they've had a great trip, that I've been a a great communicator and have taught them things. And I just think it comes down to, again, that completely innate thing, that that pure passion for for what I do simply exudes itself. It comes out and people um, kind of uh, absorb it in some ways. And because I've been doing this so long, and, and, I, and I tell people, look, you know, there's a real fast track way that you can become comfortable in this extreme environment that, that I'm going to take you in. And that is, and it sounds a little bit weird, but just look at how I do things and copy them. 
because I've learned through really hard tack how to to do things. And there are so many tiny little things that I can't explain because it's just the way that I do things. I don't even think about them. I can instruct you on the really big grand things and you'll, you, you kind of get that conceptually. But the tiny little things, how, which part of my sled I sit on or how I, um, uh, how I hold my hands when I'm skiing or, um, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. There are tiny things that are almost indescribable. And once they see that, then they start to become a lot more comfortable. Um, but, um, yeah, the guiding is an interesting thing because, because I love being with people and love educating and informing and instructing. Um, it's not a particularly difficult, it's a challenging thing for sure, mm. you know, particularly at minus 45, as I had a couple of years ago with a customer of mine um, skiing to the North Pole. Um, and that's when I start to, to find my straps too, if you like. It's like, okay, um, I can look after a team of five people at minus 20s. That's really easy on a surface that's, you know, kind of okay. But once the ice starts breaking apart and it hits minus 45, then it's, for me, it's like, not only do I love, do I love being in this situation, but now I love my guiding even more <laughs> because they're completely implicitly relying on me as a guide um, and as a knowledge, knowledgeable person to not only look after them, but make them feel comfortable in that environment too. I love it. And you've taken some pretty amazing people into these landscapes. So <laughs> tell, tell us a little bit about the famous people that you've worked with. And then I want to flow on from that thought into what is it that um, makes one person compared to another person be able to endure those conditions with joy rather than fighting it. Like, I want to know that, but let's start with the famous people stories. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so the most famous uh, would be Prince Harry, um, who um, was with me and a couple of other guides, actually a very large international team back in 2013. And we did some training in Norway and Iceland and uh, eventually flew to Antarctica via Cape Town. Um, Prince Harry was the uh, patron of the, of the expedition um, and also a patron of the charity Walking with the Wounded. So we took 12 wounded soldiers from oh, wow. Canada, uh, the UK, America and Australia. Um, and on my team, I was the guide of the Commonwealth team. We had two Canadians and two Australians. And, um, and then each team had a, a celebrity uh, with them as well. So on our team, we had uh, Dominic West. Some people may know of series like um, The Affair or The Wire. Uh, he's quite a well-known British actor. And so he was, the, he was the, uh, the celebrity on our team. And I spent three weeks in a tent with the guy and he's absolutely <laughs> hilarious, brilliant. But you get him out on the ice and he's just a tangle of... <laughs> uh, of cords and wires and his earphones are popping out and he's going in the wrong direction. He's absolutely hilarious. Um, Harry was the, the um, celebrity on the British team um, and then on the uh, US team was Alexander Skarsgård who uh, is also quite a renowned actor. Uh, in fact, uh, both exceptional actors. Um, 
after a few days, we abandoned what was supposed to be a race between these three teams because people were getting too, <laughs> too injured. Uh, so we combined as a homogenous team, if you like, and we skied the remaining 200 kilometres across the Antarctic Plateau to the South Pole, which was just exceptional. Mm-hmm. And the, the last kilometre was, was so poignant because there was a, a double amputee, a guy with two prosthetic legs, guiding attached with uh, by rope behind him a 100% blind guy and the two of them were the t- first two skiing into the south pole you know and then behind them was this straggle of wounded soldiers who i shouldn't say straggle by then they were a, a very adept well-equipped knowledgeable crowd by the time we arrived at the south pole it was magnificent and how do you think that experience change them going forward and have you kept in touch with them and seen their journeys after that experience oh my goodness one of the australians is now a guide working for me oh my god yeah so and he he's an indomitable character he just has this incredible lust for life like you and i do and we see that very quickly and easily in people um and he would call me and say eric how do i get into this outdoor stuff more and i knew that he was adventurous first and foremost because Anyone standing at the gates of uh, Australia heading off in a military plane to go to war Mm. has an adventure streak in them. There's no question about that. And I've come to realise now that that soldiers are pretty much the same ilk as as adventurers. Mm. So I could see that in him. So I encouraged him and gave him advice and he came out on little trips and stuff and he's now a... Uh, an endorsed IPGA terrestrial polar guide, which means he has completed all of the criteria for uh, for becoming uh, endorsed by the International Polar Guides Association. He could now guide by himself teams of five, uh, up to five people in Antarctica, across Greenland, all of that kind of stuff. He's coming to the North Pole again with me in, in April to build up experience to guide on the Arctic Ocean. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's quite the experience to see not only him but others have come back and done trips with me since then too. Um, yeah, they're all adventurers just like us. So when you started that trip, did you feel that there was like a speed hump in the way for a lot of these people coming on the trip, where they had to kind of get over this hump, and your trip? kind of marked that point for them and and what is it that they they take away is it just this rekindling of the sense of exploration and adventure or is it like a sense of self-belief again or overcoming that adversity and realizing there's opportunities beyond like is or is it a bit of everything yeah very much all of those you know they come back and they've had uh you know they've sustained severe injuries so my guide was shot through the neck in, in Afghanistan and um, that completely destroyed his uh, vagus nerve, which is a nerve that runs all around the body and, you know, um, uh, controls so many different things, you know, mm. peripheral stuff and uh, your bladder and your guts and all that kind of stuff. So he had to get himself back in shape through a long, long process of rehabilitation there were others that I'd mentioned that are uh, amputees and blind and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, 
um, all sorts, all, all manner of things, severe back injuries. Um, and, and they come back with this sense that I'm no longer the person I used to be. There are bits missing. The brain doesn't work the way it used to be. I don't have the same circulation. What am I going to do? The, the army doesn't like me anymore and they're not giving me the position that I used to have. They're saying that I can't fight. Um, all they're offering me are you know, basic administrative roles or they're discharging me from the, from, from the military. What's left in life for me to do? How am I going to get a job if the, if the army can't even take me or the Air Force or whatever? Um, so they come away on a trip like this, uh, which is extremely demanding because they've got to upskill first and then deal with an extreme polar environment, about 20, 30 below with a, a wind in their face for 200 kilometres or three weeks. Um, and then they finish all that. And of course, it's a long process, a year and a half or two years of training and preparation. And then they arrive at the South Pole, you know, this crux of two or so years of planning and prep. Um, and it's, wow, I don't want to let go of this. Mm. You know, this is phenomenal. This has been such a, a revelation for me that I can do stuff. People do like the way that I that my body operates now. I can do stuff. Um, and, and they've gone on to do incredible things. I mean, not just Heath, who works for me now as a guide, but, but all of the people. I'm in touch. We had the... 50 year anniversary just a few months ago by email actually not we didn't all sort of get together and everyone contributed and gave a little story about what they're doing now there was one Canadian guy who had his face blown off um, and he had dozens of plastic surgery operations and and he was um, uh, mentally you know he was in a pretty bad place I remember being in Telluride as part of our training and it was summertime and we're walking up this really steep hill and we went under uh, a chairlift and and to him it brought back memories of a helicopter flying and you know casting a shadow over him and you know the noise of the chairlift and suddenly he just shut down and became this sort of writhing mess bringing back those horrible memories of of the war and he's now married with with a couple of kids in Canada um, he met his girlfriend. We were all at a nightclub in London as part of, part of our training. Well, we happened to be in London, but we were training in uh, further north. Rehydration training. That's right. And it was three or four o'clock in the morning in a salsa bar somewhere. And, and he met a girl there who took an instant liking to him. And, yeah, he's now married as a, a family man and mm. kids. And, uh, and he's just one example of the dozen that came with us. Um, mm. Great stories, great people, and worthy of exactly the kind of things that we are worthy of. Mm, absolutely. My head's going on so many tangents. <laughs> I have a million questions for you. But I guess this story really resonates with me um, on so many levels. But one of the huge levels I see is like when I think about people in the armed forces, I think of them like athletes, like the training that they do and the preparations that they do are just exactly in line with an Olympic athlete. And I think that so I'm working at the AIS, I saw a lot of this as well, so the Australian Institute of Sports, sorry. But um, athletes preparing, 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 preparing for their game day with even though they might work with maybe like a career and education advisor and things like that, just in their heart, not preparing for that, like what happens next. Um, and when you reach that, that line and you start to cross that line, this void can happen. And if it happens earlier than an athlete expects, say through injury or 
circumstances outside of their control like you can feel like this whole world opens up um and you don't know how to kind of interact with that and I've certainly found that even just on like our guiding trips when I think about the recreational athletes that we work with who've lost a partner or lost their job or split up with a wife or you know they could go through these really difficult family circumstances and don't expect it to happen how they're just at that same point as well like your guys are where they're just trying to like make sense of it all and find that confidence and find what it is that they love and can put together in their life going forward so like yeah that's actually outside of the guiding that I love the most when you can see that inner change that someone goes on and they come out the other side and they're like a butterfly. <laughs> so, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And then just as we do, I'm yep. going to shut the door. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because when you greeted me here today and, and, and you sort of came out and you're hobbling on crutches. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. And, and for me, it's an instant, oh, my goodness, you're an elite athlete, you rely on your feet, you, you guide and you run and it's like, oh my, that's not a permanent long-term thing. You know, that's an instant yeah. reaction for me. So yeah, yeah I, I, I can see, you know, the opposite of that, that someone comes along with very little knowledge, um, just with this fleeting dream of skiing to the North Pole, South Pole, crossing Greenland, whatever. Um, and then that slow course of uh, becoming informed, becoming educated, getting the right gear, getting prepared, becoming healthier, uh, all of that kind of stuff through to standing on the edge of the trip and taking that big breath and here we go. And then, you know, struggling and getting our way through it and learning little bits more and being a bit uh, more, uh, you know, a bit better every day with every step, every kilometer. And then finally getting to the end and, yeah, this um, emerging of, uh, in, in many respects, a different person. Mm. A person brimming with confidence and just saying, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. I, I love this conversation. Mm. So, so talk to me a bit about, I have to say, Prince Harry. Mm. I'm kind of curious. Like, I can see just from the way your eyes glisten as you talk about that story of taking those guys with you and how life-changing it was even for you as a person what was it like for him you know such a notable figure someone who's put out there as this empathetic person already how was it for his experience uh the first time i met harry was in norfolk in uh, in england and of course he was surrounded by um, camera people um, security um, in an environment that he's absolutely familiar with and has totally grown up in. Um, but you could immediately see the way that he was engaging with soldiers because he has that as his background. He was trained in the military. Um, he um, engaged uh, very naturally with these people. And I think because he's very much an adventurer type and he's a soldier um, and quite young at the time, he was... 26, 27 or so, he was very much in an environment that he was comfortable in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I only had time for a quick chat and the next I met him in uh, Cape Town, you know, on the verge of flying to Antarctica. Um, And I could see that he was so up for this adventure 
primarily, well, not primarily, but one of the reasons was just so that he could escape. I was going to say that, yeah. freedom. Yeah, freedom. Yeah. However, there were two security that came with him. And oh, really? one was stationed on the coast of Antarctica where the planes come through and drop people up off and bring them back in. And, and that security guy was there essentially to vet people coming in. And then another one came with us on the trip. So we were fully supported. We had vehicles with us and uh, medics, security, uh, drivers, mechanics, camera crew, the whole lot, all in all, all, more than 30 people on the ice. Um, But Harry would be the first to chip in if any jobs needed doing, pitching tents, lighting a stove, getting food ready, helping someone, removing weight from a pack, putting more on his, absolutely straight into it, both because of his military background, which is chip in and make sure everyone's okay, but also he's very much that kind of empathetic person mm. really helpful always got a smile quick with a joke uh you know the larrikin uh absolutely comes out in him as it does in everyone else once they're out on the ice and amongst friends in an environment that encourages mm. you to be yourself mm. um so it was a wonderful experience both for him uh, and he loved it, and he'd already been to the North Pole previously, so it wasn't his first barbecue. Uh, but for us... <laughs> cold barbecue. <laughs> cold barbecue. Uh, but for us, it was great too. And very quickly, we hardly even regarded him as a royal, as, you know, mm-hmm. potentially the most famous person on the planet. It was just one of the team, you know. But let's see it. Like, I mean, I've been asked a few times in interviews on radio and articles like who do you you know who's your role model who do you admire most and and like I definitely as I've got older have come to you know look at people and think you know wow I love your ethos I love the way you approach life but not get caught up in this like tagging people by a royalty or doctor status or this or that like at the end of the day they're human they eat they sleep they shit (laughs) yeah and I imagine that in getting out in that environment where there are no distractions really does break down these barriers. And, Absolutely. Yeah, 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 without question. In fact, a great example of that was um, uh, three years ago, uh, uh, two years ago, I took the chairman of Telstra on a North Pole expedition yeah. and we skied the last degree of the pole. And, you know, I met him for the first time in Jindabyne before we did some training up at Threbo uh, and above, up around Kosciuszko. And, uh, you know, I had no concept of, of, of this guy pretty much before training, only that we had communications by email. And you start to get a sense of what someone's like, the way they communicate with you. Uh, and he seemed like a reasonable guy. And then we got up onto the snow above Threadbow and it's like, ah, this guy's pretty cool, actually. He's, <laughs> um, you, you would not know that this guy is, you know, helping to run one of Australia's biggest companies and is, has been a career CEO. He's you know been head of I think, DHL and TNT and all, you know, all of these mega companies. Um, but when it boils down to it, it's just another human. Yeah, there's such a lesson in that story, isn't there? Like I, we are not what we do, but who we are. And and there's such a difference. And I've come to adopt this phrase in life, which is be more to do more. Mm -hmm. And I bring that into my own guiding because it's so easy to 
let your first question of like a member of your group as you first meet them be like oh so you know what do you do like tell me a bit about yourself and then off they go into well I'm a lawyer I'm a doctor I'm a you know and and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be how we see people because it's so easy to go oh this person is a doctor oh they'll be in a you know <laughs> a suit or this or that and like you have this exact image of how you expect them to be and you get them out there and so different <laughs> yeah the adults in they they just remind me of kids yes that's yes. who I are they're yes. kids they're just older kids and you, for them it's so refreshing that they can slip back into this role of being um uh of being managed and being guided and being part of a team and not having to live up to standards of that their work demands of them or their family demands of them they can just be themselves and it takes almost nothing for the for them to drop back into that role it's it's wonderful that's why i love this yes and so the role of the guide is really just to be the big tomboy that jumps on the playground first and is like follow me <laughs> that is so right. <laughs> yeah. That is so right. In fact, you know that that reminds me of uh, incidents that we have on the Arctic Ocean, where uh, we're confronted by what we call a lead, and a lead is a basically an avenue, a river of open water. You know, the subject that the um, Arctic Ocean is subject to forces of wind and waves and current. And that tends to move the ice around. Either it can push together and create big walls that we call pressure ridges, mm-hmm. or they can grind next to each other and it sounds like trains shunting and that's quite scary, particularly when you camp nearby them. Or they can separate, you know, revealing the water underneath. And when we're skiing along as a team and then we're confronted by a, a lead of open water, it's like, my goodness, how do we get across that? You know, we can see the other side, might just be 10 metres away. But it goes endlessly, to, you know, to the right and to the left, mm. um, and it's like, okay, this is this is you've you've just been confronted by the playground. This is where we have fun. <laughs> Let's raft the, the the two sleds together because they're buoyant. Get this rope out. Here's my dry suit. Help me put it on. Mm. Um, tie yourself to this. Make sure that I don't float away if the wind gets heavy, uh, strong. Um, look after yourselves check each other noses from time to time make sure you keep yourself covered okay i'm going to slip in the water and swim across and when i'm done i'm going to tow across this ferry that you've put together and i'm going to set up this raft and then just be ready clamber on be really careful don't topple into the water and i'm going to ferry you back and forth it's like what are you serious oh we didn't know this was part of the deal this is awesome you know and you see their light at first they're sure there's some um trepidation it's like oh i don't know about this and then as soon as the first person clambers on, and there's always one person that's just like the, you know, the gutsy gung-ho <laughs> person, which is great. And I could be seen as that gutsy gung-ho person, but because I'm the guide and I'm very careful about what I do, and, and you know, I certainly wouldn't take them into environments and situations that were perilous or, you know, life, life risk yeah. unsafe. Um, you get that first person on board and then it's like, oh, my turn awesome I'm going to love this and then it's like can we have more of those once I get to the other side yeah do you ever have people on your trips who just never quite crack the environment like never quite settle in and don't fight it but can't embrace it um 
Very rarely. Yeah. And, and I think the reason for that is because there has to be a lot of communication before we reach the gateway town. Um, uh, less so on the trips that I run here in Australia. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about skiing to the North and South Poles, there's so much preparation that's required. Mm. I need to make sure everyone's got the right gear before I even meet them in the gateway town. So there's a lot of communication. And I get a sense of who that person is. But it doesn't always work. Um, and <laughs> I'm reminded of a guy that came on, a, on a, one of our backcountry winter trips around Kosciuszko. Um, and I knew from the first, you know, 20 minutes climbing up this very steep hill, it was a really steep start, uh, that he was going to struggle, not just physically, but mentally. And actually, he was doing some pre-training to try to get on a team that was going to ski across Antarctica via the South Oh, wow. Um, and it was quite funny because we were, we were heading up to a spot that we, we often stop for lunch on the second day. And... So the other team members, there were five or six of them, they were slightly ahead and they'd sort of topped a rise and they were on this little flat bit where the lunch is. And I was with this fella behind and, and we'd come up this other little rise and he was expecting it to be like just there. And they disappeared. They weren't that far ahead, but they disappeared. And all I heard, he didn't know that I was right behind him. And all I heard this was, was he stopped and leant on his poles and he said, ah, oh, for F's sake. <laughs> it's like, oh dear, okay. Um, and, then, and then we went on another five minutes and he still hadn't topped the rise and he stopped and leant on his poles again. And he said, what the F was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, this guy's... Anyway, needless to say, he pulled out of the trip about yeah. two or three days in. Uh, but I'm still in touch with him, and he's just a wonderful character anyway, a really lovely human being, and he goes off and has adventures of a different kind mm. that are not so physical. He goes dog sledding and, you know, th- those kind of things, and I, I, I think that's wonderful. So he's in some ways still from the same mould, but um, a slightly different one. Yeah, and, the, yeah, there's a lesson in that one as well in that it isn't for everyone, mm. and that's, that's part of that really important thing about doing things for the right reasons and not getting caught up in that fear of missing out like I must do it because my best friend's Mm. doing it it's like no 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 like what's inside you and does this really make your toes tingle because I mean a lot of the people who who even listen into the podcast and that I work with are in that sort of ultra distance running world crazy distances over crazy periods of time and I can tell you what, like if you're 50, 60, 70, 80K into an event or a, a mission and you're doing it for the wrong reasons, when that going gets tough, it's really tough. <laughs> it's really, really tough. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I've seen firsthand <clears throat> the, the mental strength that, that you folks have. Mm. Um, when I guided Pat Farmer from the North Pole to the South Pole. So mm. Pat Farmer is an Australian former federal politician, but perhaps more known for his um, ultra yeah, His running exploits, yeah. That's right, across America and around Australia and those kind of things. And, and he approached me, um, you know, wanting to go from the North Pole to South Pole, so literally to traverse the planet from its most extreme points. And, um, and as a result of that, um, you know, I, you know, it, it was revealed to me the, the strength of mind that you need to do the kinds of things mm. that you guys do. Not only to ski a couple of marathons across a day, but to do that 
day in day out you know it's um it's astonishing and there's this power that or, or there's this display of of the strength of mind over body uh, you know I, I, there's only so much a body can do ultimately but um there's so much you can push through mm. and there's there's so much that we as humans don't understand about our capabilities and i think ultra marathon runners are testament to what we can do because you often often have to push yourselves beyond reasonable limits where whereas we as trekkers skiers to the poles we love our routine and our luxury and our camping at the end of the day and our sleeping <laughs> and our food <laughs> exactly yeah and, and there, there is a lot of luxury that that i can offer to my teams um, and we rely on that because we often go for months at a time yeah. on the longer ones. We can't do as you do. Whereas Pat Farmer, that's the way that he expected the polar trip to run. Oh, we're going to do 70 Ks. Well, actually, 70 Ks means that we're not going to light a stove. We can't sleep. We can't eat. Um, and we're going to slowly spiral into an abyss that would, you know, that's yeah. going to destroy your trip yeah. before it's even begun. Yeah, it's so true. But it, for me that raises a point of coming back to like doing it for the right reasons and so many people that I work with uh, and speak to about ultra marathons and long missions and exploring are saying like I'm, I'm doing it because I kind of want to know what I'm capable of I want to know where my limits are I just think that if you get in those adventures for the wrong reason your limits are not where they they can be like there's a discrepancy because if you're in there and you're not really there for the right reason you're going to hit a wall and it's going to come a lot earlier than if you're there because you just want to be there (laughs) and I really experienced this when we did Federation Peak earlier in 2018 um I mean the weather was horrendous like it really like it was really miserable (laughs) but There was no place that I wanted to be more than out there in this, like, mud-sodden, like, leech-infested, <laughs> freezing cold environment. And, um, and I, I still didn't find my limits. Not really. Maybe right at the top got really pretty scary and pretty sketchy. Um, and we ended up turning around, like, 50 metres from the top because it just got too dangerous. But... Um, but I didn't probably find that limit of like physical and emotionally like boundary and and it was because I was there for that reason that I should be there and yeah so I I just think it's like a really good little like reflection point um yeah and it's hard I think it is hard to find what women what we're meant to do and what we love to do yeah yeah sure and you know the beauty of me or my company being able to offer what we do is that people find a platform in order to um well push themselves to the limit but also really primarily to find that environment that they Mm. feel um that that they feel they want to know more about Mm. and that eventually will feel comfortable within that environment despite all of its dangers and perils and complexities but but i wouldn't really want someone to come along um and join a trip just to find out what their limits were because if their limits are way under (laughs) what they should (laughs) naturally be to join the trip that would be a disaster for 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 the trip trip, you know uh, for the whole team um so i most love when people contact me and say um, 
you know, I want to ski to the North Pole um, and then start asking questions about the environment, you know, yeah. what it's like, will we see open water, uh, how prevalent are polar bears, um, what sort of gear do I need to combat this and that. I, I took a young girl skiing to the North Pole and South Pole and across Greenland. She was 14 when I took her skiing to the North Pole. We skied 150 kilometres. Um, it was a really tough trip for her. You know, of course it's going to be cold. Um, and being a 14-year-old, a 14-year-old is just bewildered by life, really, let alone the Arctic Ocean. And I remember, I remember skiing along on day four or five, you know, with her right behind me and her father behind her and a cameraman behind the dad. Um, and, you know, it had been tough for her, of course, you know, particularly toileting and dropping her dacks and, you know, trying to get out of the wind and not to pee on herself and, mm. you know, all of those really challenging mm. things that we underestimate. They're more difficult for girls anyway, but as a 14-year-old surrounded by blokes, you know, it's like mm. a, a challenging thing anyway. And I was expect, and I pulled in for a break and I was expecting to turn around and just see her desperate and in tears and she just looked at me and says, I love this. This looks like being on Mars. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's the stuff that I want to hear. Yeah. I, don't really, I, I don't really want to hear... Oh, how far do we? How far till till the North Pole now? You know, and are we making good time? And it's just like be in the here and now. And she was, yeah. and she turned out to be a, an extraordinary person to have on a trip for both the North Pole, then the crossing of Greenland, and then skiing a new route to the South Pole over the course of uh, almost forty days. Wow, uh, awesome! Oh, I love the stories. Um, yeah, so I'm curious to explore then what the values of like what your company's values are based on because I could imagine that there are skeptics out there who would question the motives of taking people into these environments who feel that they should be protected I mean I can understand the argument that exists there the wilderness and wild spaces are becoming like an increasingly precious commodity for want of a better word um so yeah let, let's talk about values mm. yeah well yeah it's a really um valid question and um in some ways my operations in antarctica are easy to justify because we're a member of iato which is the international association of antarctica tour operators and Antarctica works very closely with the Antarctic Treaty System, which is the overarching body that looks after Antarctica and mm -hmm. everything that goes on in Antarctica for the primary reason of protecting it. Now, because um, we're a member of IATO, we trust in IATO to do the right thing with the industry and to operate in a way that tourism is sustainable in Antarctica that everyone does the right thing, everyone reports their activities before they leave, everyone stays in touch while they're down there, and everyone then reports how things panned out at the end. Um, and because it's so strict and so well monitored that I feel that I'm in the right space. Mm -hmm. So long as I'm abiding by all of the regulations that are put down by IATO and the Antarctic Treaty System, then I'm in a good place. We're operating the way with, that we should be operating. And there's been a lot of research done over decades about how tourism should operate in Antarctica. Now and again, you know, things go a bit awry and a cruise mm. ship might grind up on a reef somewhere or, you know, someone will need evacuating or 
God forbid there's even a death on board a cruise ship out there. Um, but from the feedback that we get at uh, annual conferences every year is that um, stuff works well, um, stuff is very closely monitored, and that all of the people involved do their best to look after the place. The Arctic Ocean, however, is still a bit of maverick mm. town. It's less regulated. It is in the cruise industry regulated through AECO, but in terms of us skiing to the North Pole, there's almost no regulatory body aside from um, the IPGA, which is the International Polar Guides Association, which I helped found five or six years ago. Um, and we do, do the best that we can within our very small body of organisation uh, and we operate in, with best practice as guides. We're at the behest, too, of companies that fly us in on big aircraft and set up small camps that are adrift on the Arctic Ocean. And, and their practices are, in essence, quite unregulated. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's time that there was a regulating body like IATO that looked mm. after the practices of all things that happen beyond the remit of the cruising companies out mm. there. Um, I'm not saying that bad things are happening out there and that it's totally unregulated, but uh, things could be done better in terms of regulation. Well, I guess that we all probably agree that the planet is at just this tipping point where it needs compassion and nurturing and protection and we're the custodians. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can hear where you're coming from with that. So. On that note, like what changes have you seen in these environments since you first started guiding? Mm. Oh, um, in the Arctic Ocean, my first trip there was skiing from Russia to the North Pole in 2002. Mm -hmm. I was 58 days, almost a thousand kilometers with my friend John Muir and um, a hell of a hell of an experience it was our first introduction into arctic ocean expeditioning and we were none the wiser we had no history of that kind of travel we'd skied to the south pole together a couple of years earlier but we'd never been on the arctic ocean before we didn't really know what the environment was like aside from the yeah, it's a frozen ocean and we didn't know what uh, weather systems we would um, experience when we were there but that has served as somewhat of a um, a canary in a coal or, or, or a litmus test if you like mm. to now uh, 16 years down mm. the track um, and there are more storms now there's less ice there's more open water uh, and I see that you know we have sort of outlier years where stuff's really frozen and then we have the opposite extremes where we've had three degrees below zero on a mm. North Pole trip and tons of open water and soft slushy snow and it's horrific and it's like doom and gloom but by and large there is there is a change that I've seen and that's backed up by the data you know the Arctic Ocean is in the worst state that it's been in human history um, and I also get that because at Barneo, which is a, a Russian drift station that they set up near the North Pole at the end of every March to accommodate the small airborne tourist industry that I'm part of, mm. um, it accommodates scientists that are doing the actual research on climate change in the Arctic Ocean, mm. uh, on the Arctic Ocean. They've got experiments that are year-round that they go back and retrieve all of their 
stuff from the ocean, from the seabed through to the top. And I ask them every year, so climate change is happening, right? And they look at me and it's like, Eric, you ask this every year. It's getting really annoying. You know, how many times do I need to tell you? Yeah, I, I want to hear it again because people ask me all the time. And well, what evidence do you have? Well, I've seen it but I'm actually speaking to the scientists mm. who come up with the data, who release it to the rest of the world and who get annoyed because it gets filtered through government and it gets filtered through the media. Um, and for many years saying, well, it's not as bad as it's made out to be. Actually, you know what? It's worse than it, than, than governments and media have made mm. it out to be. It, it's bordering catastrophic. And, you know, we're at a tipping point and if stuff doesn't happen within the next 10 years, we're, we're definitely going to lose it. Luckily, Antarctica is a bit, you know, it's in a, in a cold sink there and stuff is moving slower. But the Antarctic Peninsula, which is that tadpole tail that pokes out from Antarctica towards North America, South America, um, massive changes there. The decline in penguin colony numbers, um, the retreat of glaciers and even grass growing on the hills. <laughs> this is in Antarctica. East Antarctica, right in the middle, up high in that in that you know big cold area. There's there's no there's been no change, no recorded change there. Um, but if it if we do record change there, that means we're way beyond mm-hmm. redemption. So how do you reconcile what you know with your life and the voice, I guess, that you have in your community? Because um, it's something that I think about all the time, like all the time, and especially as you know, a younger, a younger person coming through, you know, and someone who sort of spent a lot of her years, like, tripping all over the world, chasing, like, athletic dreams, sometimes it's hard not to sit back and think, you know, what was I thinking, (laughs) you know, Um, so yeah, talk to me about how you reconcile with it. Yeah, look, I I reconcile on a personal level that I spent a lot of my time um, away from the electric grid and away from my car and away from uh, this life where convenience um, dominates our lives. Flick a switch on here, jump in a car, do whatever. And I spent a lot of my time away from that, um, which is great. But of course, in preparation to be away from it, I, I've got to be part of the grid. I'm driving cars, I'm doing, I'm flying in planes and all that kind of stuff. But, but at least I'm... Um, encouraging a lifestyle that that minimizes our connection with those modern conveniences um, personally I've got 40 puff solar panels on my roof and uh, which is awesome so I'm not uh, you know I, I'm, I don't have a bear a big bearing on our um, electric on the uh, on the grid um, I drive a, a, a very efficient car and my next car will undoubtedly be an electric car there's no question about that we do our best at recycling and minimizing our plastic use and all of those kinds of things that really should just people shouldn't even think about these days it just be should be a standard way of living our lives um so personally i can i can reconcile all that how i reconcile putting a group of people on an Aleutian 76 jet and flying them from cape town or chile to antarctica um is another matter and uh you know that's something that is a is an unfortunate byproduct of getting to these areas where I can be away from all of these modern conveniences. Mm. But hopefully, 
um, by taking people out into these wilderness environments, they come back somewhat as ambassadors, not just yeah. for the boulder environments, but for a cleaner, greener planet. A simpler lifestyle a too. A simpler lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, that's what we got to as well. Like for a while there, we were thinking about keeping our tours to Tasmania because we have the most extraordinary environment, the most amazing trails. And yeah, we just kind of kept finding that people wanted to go overseas. And we knew that if we were to be a viable commodity in five or ten years time we had to kind of listen to what the hearts of the customers were but what we found was the positive spin-off of heading over to the dollar mines or to the french Pyrenees or to japan was that people did often say to us even when they were there like wow we really do have it so good back home don't we and coming and when you're over there and there's no distraction and Facebook doesn't work and your phone doesn't work and you have their undivided attention in a natural environment not only are they more in tune with the environment but you can also impart the small lessons or just be as you are like you say like you know conscious of what you're buying you don't buy the bottled waters and you know you're just making these choices that you naturally make without thinking and they watch and they observe and they learn and a group of 14 people can come home to Australia and then share that with their children and their families and their friends and and then also appreciate what they have. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how we reconciled with it in the end as well. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's interesting because in, in many ways we've been the reverse of you guys because we've always operated overseas, um, obviously Antarctica and the Arctic. Um, and then it's like this you know, reignition of, hey, look where I am, my goodness, you know. And, and so that's, so hence we started operating in uh, around Kosciuszko and the areas up there. And then it's like, well, what are you talking about? What about your doorstep? <laughs> so we're now looking at starting to offer winter trips here in Tassie oh, and, cool. and clientele from overseas are now contacting us and say, hey, we love your local trips, you know, yeah. we want to come and, and, and join up and... And then you, you come away from these trips and because invariably you hook up on Facebook, you become friends on Facebook and you see their posts and, and they're just wonderful um, renditions of the trip, but also this appreciation invariably for the environment too mm -hmm. and the places that they've been. And you just kind of hope that that filters through to their life mm -hmm. somehow and they make a little difference that together we'll make those little bits of difference to make a big difference for the planet somewhere down the track. Love it. All right, so talk to me now about your own exploration. So there's there's the guiding and then there's the equipment designing and, and selling uh, and then there's this exploring person <laughs> who you said, I, I had it written down actually, what was it? Um, that you're driven to get up every morning to explore the path less traveled and speaking to my heart. <laughs> so what has been the most profound expedition that you feel you've been on personally? Yeah, that's a tricky one because, um, because the most profound ones, and this is a really interesting topic in the world that I inhabit at the moment. Um, the most profound for me um, are pioneering a new route, for example, across Antarctica to the South Pole that people have never trod foot on before. People haven't seen them before, bar, okay, 
um, aerial photographs haven't been taken in the 60s and then satellite imagery and remote sensing where we can now zoom in and maybe look at a, a glacier or a route uh, from afar still, but no one's actually tread foot on these places. And when I conceptualise uh, a new trip, oh man, that's, that ignites me like nothing else. So is it, is it the, because no one's been there or because of what you could see? Like, oh, all of it. Both. Oh, yeah. And it's... Yeah. It's... It, the two are uh, enmeshed because if you're the first one there, you're seeing it for the first time and you're seeing stuff that no one's seen before. And it's not be, it's not the feeling of trumping humanity because, ha-ha, I'm here first. No, no one ever gonna, is, is going to say that after me. It's like seeing stuff. And then, no one's seen that crevasse there before no one's seen that peak from this perspective sure from an aerial photograph or pilots may, may have flown over but i'm seeing stuff i'm seeing part of the planet that uh that's fresh and it's not new it's been there for billions of years but um but but i'm there with a team of people that are discovering exploring you know th there are a lot of adventurers out there and i make adventurers of people every time I take them on a trip but when you go into areas that are new then those people then are, uh, are straddling this very fine line between adventure and exploration and that's awesome look they're being guided and many would say well they're hardly explorers they certainly wouldn't be there without you and, and I would tend to agree with that but they're still they're still committing to going to a part of the planet that they know nothing about and they may not make it through to the other side because of something unforeseen that no one could have, could have predicted. So there's a big sense of trust that they need to have that stuff will work out. Mm. It's not, it doesn't always work out that way or there's some you know hairy bits in between, for example... With the young girl again, who was by then 16, we did a new route skin to the South Pole. So up through a glacier that had never been traversed through the Transantarctic Mountains and then a line across the plateau to the, to the South Pole. And, and heading up uh, the glacier, we could see then what we could see in the imagery beforehand and we called it the White Wall. And the White Wall was just this very steep pitch that would take us a day to get up hauling these heavy sleds behind us. Um, and could we make it up there? If we couldn't, if we got to the, to the base of this white wall and there's no way you could get through it, it meant we had to go all the way back and find an alternative route up a different glacier. And that different glacier would be a glacier that I knew about already because I actually pioneered that the year before. So that's what, that's what I live for. That's the stuff that floats my boat. And actually, that, that was the third glacier that I've... Um, opened up in Antarctica through the Transantarctic yeah. Mountains. Um, and that in itself allows me really to, to you know, consider myself an explorer. And very, very few people on the planet really can, can hang, you know, that, yeah. that label on, on what they do. Um, and most of my colleagues, you know, are, are not in that field as well. And it kind of sets me apart. I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet, but I'm just trying to delineate yeah, the difference between difference. adventuring and exploring. Yeah, and I, I love that you are delineating it because I think it is completely different. 
I feel like there's one side of exploring that is also out there, which is you might go back to the same environments that you've been before, but you're going back to see them in a new light, in a new season or um, post an event like the fires that are happening at the moment and you're going back in there and there are so many unknowns and you want to observe that landscape all over again but yeah in this new frame of mind I kind of think that's the other side of exploring that I see sure um but I, I I'm really interested to know a little bit more about some of the trips because um, when I did my little bit of homework <laughs> You mentioned that there was a fairly big turning point for you when you did the South Pole with a group of people. I think on your website you said you think you might have been the slowest people ever (laughs) to make it to the South Pole. (laughs) Um, And you said it was a large failure in team dynamics. Mm. So can you talk to me a bit about that? Yeah. So back in uh, the late (laughs) 90s, I started planning a trip and the inspiration for the trip came from... Uh, an Englishman called Robert Swan, um, who was the first person to trek uh, on the surface to both poles, which he did back in the 80s. Um, And I'd read both his books, and after reading his book or his partner's book about about the South Pole trip called In the Footsteps of Scott, which was the name of the expedition and the book, um, it's like, okay, so they made it to the South Pole, awesome, up the Beardmore Glacier, which was pioneered by Shackleton, you know, and then used by Scott so many years ago. I'd like to do the same thing, but then turn around and come back again, because it's never been done, all right? Amundsen did it, but with dogs and fully supported way back when. Um, Scott um, made it to the pole, but they all perished, he and his team perished on the way back. Shackleton pioneered the Shackleton and went within you know, 150 kilometres of the pole and then turned round to save his team's lives and made it back to uh, to, to uh, his base. So no one had actually trekked to the pole and back again. So that was the premise of this trip. Not just to complete the first out and back trip, which would be almost 3,000 kilometres, 100 days food in our sleds, um, but we would pioneer a new route through the Shackleton Glacier, What one of the world's biggest glaciers. I think it's in the top 10 in terms of size. Um, and see stuff that no one had seen before, tread on ground that no one had trodden on before, and feel that we were in the realm of exploration. So we put this team together and uh, found ourselves on the edge of Antarctica. And after the first day, I wrote in my... Uh, after the first day, one of the guys revealed in his diary, uh, I don't think the other guy's going to make it. And I wrote it in my diary on the second day that oh I don't gosh. think he's going to make it. So, um, and that's exactly how it panned out. Things, um, the, the the team dynamics were, uh, you know, slowly spiraled out of control. Uh, part of the problem was that we had no nominated leader. It was my trip, and I organised it, and I invited the other two. But I was the least experienced of them. The other two were high altitude mountaineers. They. Um, they both climbed Everest and many other high peaks and some very steep committing climbs, you know, in their repertoire. So, you know, they were at the cutting edge of climbing adventure. And, um, and although I felt like I was the leader and it was my trip, I felt that I couldn't stand up and mm. or put my, you know, hand up and say, okay, we need a leader, I'm it, 
even when we had to complete you know paperwork and stuff you know with the with the New Zealanders who flew us in um, and it needed a strong leader to, to sort us out I just didn't have the experience back then to do it so um, we traveled far too slowly our sleds were too heavy as all people's sleds were back in that era we're talking about 20 years ago um, and um, you know, we needed to travel more than 20 kilometres a day in order to make it to the pole and then back again, and we were well under that. So, yeah, we got up the Shackleton Glacier and we laid depots along the way, so caches that came out of our own sleds that we would then collect as, you know, a train of cornflakes on the way back and get us back to the, st- to the coast of Antarctica. And um, as it turned out, we would lay those depots far too hastily because we actually needed that food in order to get to the South Pole in the first place. So it took us 86 days to get to the South Pole. That still stands as the record slowest ever South. (laughs) Although it's a long route. You know, the shortest route that I've done is uh, just under 600 kilometres. So this was more than double that. But uh, 84 days and 1,425 kilometres, it's... Yeah, it's a record as the slowest ever trip to the South Pole. The intention was to turn around at the South Pole and then with these kites that are so common and ubiquitous now in kite surfing, we would launch those things and then use those catabatic winds to take us back to the coast. Had a very fast trip. We only catered for 25 days of food wow. or something for the return trip. And, um, but we were so inept as a team, we just couldn't mobilise ourselves as a functioning unit and uh, we were airlifted out of the South Pole, unfortunately. So you took that experience and what you learned about team dynamics and just the polar environments, I guess, in general, and then went on, was it to the North Pole with John Muir? Yes. Yeah, and a totally different experience from what I could pick up from your yeah. writing. Yeah, absolutely. So John was one of the members of the South Pole trip and we got on like a house on fire. It was really interesting because I first met him and, uh, you know, at the back of an outdoor store in, uh, in Melbourne, um, Eastern Mountain Centre, EMC, and I worked there for a little while. A very good friend of mine ran the store back then. And John just fronted up as many adventurers from around Australia did because they all had this affinity for Mark, who, who was the store owner, who was a climber too, and... And John and I started chatting and, and here are these two guys, you know, I was sort of, you know, relatively clean cut and, um, and John was there with his straggly pigtails and his thongs and his rabbit, rabbit skin vest and, you know, straight out of the, out of the bush. So we're like chalk and cheese, but we hit it off immediately and pretty much there and then we decided to ski to the South Pole, you know, um, I'd, I'd already skied across Greenland, so I had a certain amount of experience. John had completed some mega climbs in the Himalayas and, and elsewhere around the world. And then we invited uh, Peter Hillary to join that South Pole trip. That's the one that didn't turn out, but because John and I, you know, were just like pigs in the proverbial, we <laughs> let's go to the North Pole, yeah, we're ready for it. And so we did and had the most incredible trip it was a a trip of revelation of our own capabilities of an environment that's so exacting that one slip and you can die quite easily there Um, our communications went down and 
People came out searching for us. Um, we eventually arrived at the South Pole with only a, a single beacon working. We didn't even know whether it was working. We relied on that for, for someone to come and pick us up. Thankfully, they did. Thankfully, the beacon was working. Um, and it was a, um, an incredible journey, really, that set me up for guiding in that environment, which I've been now doing for 15 years and absolutely love it. In, in many ways, it's the environment that I love most. So what's next like, for you? Next for me is um, bringing my daughter on as many adventures, uh, adventures as I can. We've skied across Svalbard together. We've done a trip up around Cozzi. She's adept anyway. She hiked the overland track by herself when she was 15 already. And, and since then, she's done it a couple more, a few more times. She just made a second descent of the Franklin River, um, guiding some friends by raft. And the first descent, she kayaked. Didn't even capsize once on the Franklin, you know. It's like, my goodness, her kayaking, like her music, outstripped me by the time she was 12 or 13. <laughs> and, and now she's just going great guns. So for me, immersing her into this environment uh, as much as I possibly can. Um, there are still objectives in Antarctica that I would love to go and do, but uh, I've, I've already said a couple of times that I've retired from long trips. <laughs> My fingers don't tolerate the cold as much as okay. they used to. I get yeah. terrible chillblains these days. Um, and, you know, we talked earlier about... Um, you know, revelations and epiphanies. And when I made the, the decision that I can't do these long trips anymore, it was devastating. Mm. Yeah. So how do you, like, how do you process that? And what, what do you think, what have you come to learn about that epiphany and what that means for you? In, have you been able to thread a positiveness mm. through that experience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I work as a consultant for expeditions as well. People approach me. They don't want to be guided. They want to do stuff by themselves or just their own autonomous team without the help of a guide. And that's awesome. I love those projects because it's people with the same ilk wanting to go out and do stuff, um, test themselves. And you were saying it need not necessarily be a new route. It just needs to be a different mindset, a different way of approaching stuff, a technique or a mode of travel that's never been done before or combining modes of travel that have never been done before. And that's what I really get interested in. You know, The alternative to that is that I sometimes get approached by people that say, yeah, I want to cross Antarctica and then we're going to go down the Leverett Glacier. And immediately it's like, oh, yeah. really? Do you want to ski down the Leverett Glacier that has a graded road on it? And this is actually a controversy. I sort of mentioned that earlier. That's a big brewing controversy because recently there was a mega story covered by New York Times about an American guy followed closely behind by a Brit who claimed the first solo unsupported ski crossings of Antarctica. Despite the fact that they started on an inner coastline, so not to a point on the outside of the coast, but the, you have ice shelves in Antarctica. Mm. So one of those inner coastlines and then skiing down a graded road for uh, 500 kilometers, yeah, which right. is flagged, it's prepared, it's graded. You never yeah, need to get a right. compass out. Yeah. And, and they make these claims of being the first to this or that. And it's, uh, so when people come to me and they say, yeah, we want to do a crossing of Antarctica and we're going to use the Leverett Glacier on this road, it's like, sorry, not interested. 
I guess you, you, just... you might as well be a flat earther coming yeah. to me and say, tell me, why are you hiding the fact that the Earth's flat and these, <laughs> and these perimeters around that are guarded by NASA? Why don't you, you know, I get the same reaction when people yeah. say they want to ski this route as I do by flat earthers. So I guess it's just from all your experiences, you've just become so aware of what your personal value systems are and and it's there is a point at which you don't Absolutely. want to want to cross. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you know, it's it's easy for me to accept anyone on board because if the project goes ahead, we're talking vast amounts of money that can be quite lucrative for a company like mine because you know we're dealing in such big amounts that even small commissions can be can be quite healthy um, but that doesn't interest me if the project doesn't have value if it doesn't have integ- integrity or, or some sort of authenticity about it it's it's the same feeling that I get um, <laughs> if someone might say to me uh, do you want to come on a cruise ship to whatever <laughs> no, no, no one no, that, that yeah. ever has, has ever asked me that and I, I would happily turn them down but but I get the same sense that mm. you know to have some value in in what you're planning if you're talking about these extraordinary environments and you're talking about adventure and you're going to be on a set of skis dragging a sled living in tents and those kinds of things it doesn't take much to step away from the easy option yeah I feel like that a bit in in that ultra distance world, if I kind of have, I guess my brain's trying to interpret as you're chatting and, and put it into a perspective that my brain understands. But, but a very similar avenue that I've seen is in the ultra distance world, this booming of the racing industry, which is very lucrative as well for the, the racers that get it right. And I don't detract from racing. I think it, it absolutely has a place but when it becomes people's sole focus and the sole thing they live for, that I feel is when I get concerned because my brain is also saying, why, why can't we, why can't you just step a little bit off to the side onto a, a new route? And to me, the new route is what I call missioning. So it's where you hatch the dream for yourself. You find a route that you just makes your toes tingle. Now, 50,000 people could have run through that route but it would be the first time that you have done it because as soon as you line up on a race you know that it's totally doable as in an organiser wouldn't set a race if he didn't think that someone could at least get to the finish of it um, so I just I mean a lot of the time it's supported and there's, there's just something so extraordinary about pulling up in your vehicle at some dead end of a road in a wet soggy car park and putting on your vest pack and your gear and heading off and you don't even really know if this is like doable Doable. for you but that's part of the the adventure in it um so I kind of like definitely hearing what you're saying it's like I think that is part of our role as people who who have seen the light on the other side is to help guide people towards that and that that opportunity to to grow because that is where you grow the most. Absolutely. Yeah, the rewards are so much more when you just take that slightly harder road. Yeah, for sure. And the road need not necessarily be harder because it's bumpier. Yeah. It's just because it's, like you said, it's new to you. Yeah. And that makes it a bumpy road. And the failure failure in the times when you do fail, because we we all do, 
um, is also so much more personal. Like there's so much, the lessons go so much deeper than I think if you fail in a, in a really controlled environment. Absolutely. So, okay. All right. Let's wrap it. Um, so just the final few questions I have is, um, what is, what is one thing that you wish you could know more about? Hmm. That's a great question. What could I know more about? Uh, you know, it's interesting because I've been in these environments for 25 years, but I still think I need to know more about them. You know, we talk about ice and there are so many different forms of ice, but there are so many forms of ice that I don't know about. <laughs> and I love ice. I have a fetish for ice, if you like. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I want to see the types of ice, not only ice, but all of the environments that surround us, that could be in the atmosphere, it could be in the way that ice reacts with land and with people and those kinds of things. So a lot of that I'd like to see. I think the one thing that stands out from my um, experience as a polar dude <laughs> um, <laughs> is a polar winter. I mean, it's, it's kind of missing and it's something that I'm, that I would love to experience. And it's it's a bit weird that I, that it's dominated my life, the polar worlds, and yet I've never experienced a polar winter. I've never mm. overwintered in Antarctica. I've worked for the Australian Antarctic Division on a couple of seasons, but they've only been summer projects. And of course, the guiding that I do is only ever during summer there. Um, I'm in the Arctic um, as they're coming out of their winter time, and it's dark there overnight. But it's it's light during the daytime and mm. I want to experience that darkness. Uh, it's high time. It's very easy to do. It's, you know, I could literally just fly to Svalbard and rent an apartment for the winter. Um, but I want a winter trip in the yeah. midst of winter and the darkness. And that has purpose and meaning and yes, value. Exactly yes, exactly right. Not then, just sitting in a tent for a, a winter. Yeah. You know, I want to be traveling and doing and seeing and experiencing yeah. and exploring. And it just sounds like you haven't quite worked out the ins and outs of, of what that trip would mean for exactly. you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Got it. Need, need time on that one. Yes, definitely. <laughs> um, what do you think is your greatest strength? My greatest strength by far is not to overthink things. <laughs> yeah. I just have this simplicity in thought that some people you know, might see as, um, uh, um, I don't know, uh, well, simplicity, but that's exactly what it is. I don't overthink things. It's like, yeah, I've got, I've got the capacity to do that. I'm going to go in and do it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to research it and I'm going to determine whether it's feasible and all of those kinds of things. But, um, and that simplicity of thought extends through to everything that I do in my life with my family, with my work, with my play, with my local little trips that I want to do. Um, I just don't overthink it. If you think too much about what if the weather does this or what if this happens or what if someone gets sick or, you know, oh my goodness, you could make, you could make so many plans that would, you know, Never kind of set everything and, and follow a nice, neat, narrow path down to certainty, but absolutely not. In fact, that uncertainty and that, in some ways, lack of planning is part of the beauty of, of living this kind of life. Absolutely. What is the quote? Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. 
I love it. I love it. that. That's great. Yeah. I, get, I can get caught in my head, but um, I pull myself up sometimes now. Like I'm learning to really just take a step back because you're right. Like you can plan to the nth degree, but life will change tomorrow. Mm. And um, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and, and I think the other um, strength that I have is um, the desire to want to endure discomfort. <laughs> Not deliberately, okay, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to make it as hard as myself <laughs> I can for myself, which is a, unfortunately a very British thing to do. And we see that in British expeditions in, yeah. in the past yeah, that right. have almost deliberately yeah. denied themselves certain things just to make it as hard as they can to be this, uh, you know, stoic version of themselves, yes. which borderlines you know negligence yes good on you yeah, yeah. well done but but uh, but i want to go and then i go into that environment with as many luxuries as i can because i can because i don't have to endure that discomfort but when it comes down when it boils down to being outside hauling a sled in minus 40 minus 50 if you don't have that stuff you just can't be there anyway yeah. but i want to experience all of those things yeah um and uh, f- purely for the sake of experience. And are you like me where in daily life, like, I don't really like being cold, yeah. like, you know, but then when you're in that moment, it's like you have this ability to switch gears to a whole new level. Of Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, here I get cold fingers strapping a kayak on the roof <laughs> yeah. in the springtime you know it's like yeah. or I'm rugged up or the fire's cranking at home and it's you know it's uh it's borders border, pathetic but but out there yeah the, the colder it gets oh man the more lively I am I absolutely love it all right so final few questions greatest fear Oh, as a father, it's a pretty, or as a parent, yeah, the greatest fear is outliving your children. Um, but that in no way would stop me from taking my kids to the extremes of the world. My son is less likely to go just because it's not his thing. He's, a, he's an entertainer, musician, and he's an explorer like me, but in this field of it's performance, wow. music and art, and yeah, the creativity <coughs> is astonishing. Um, yes, yeah, so, but it doesn't hinder me taking my encouraging my daughter to come into the environments that I go into it that, that are unequivocally dangerous. Um, but my biggest fear is, you know, that something were to go wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over and above that, my other fear would be um, not being able to do what I do anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the physicality will come at some stage, will dwindle at some stage. But at the moment, at 56, I, I feel like I have enough, as much stamina and strength as I did as a 20-year-old. Mm. I guess I've slowed down a little bit in my periphery, you know, my circulation is not what it used to be. But if I couldn't have my, you know, seasonal ventures down to Antarctica and the Arctic, that would, that would kill me as a person. Mm. That would hollow out my shell and, you know, there'd be not much left. And I, you know, a, as a consequence... I would engage differently with people and with my family, so that it would destroy me. Mm. Yeah, there's no question about that. But luckily, I have this other string to my bow. You know, I run a business that's both expeditioning and equipment. Mm. So I'm, I love the designing world too. You know, it's a, 
it's a thing that I discovered a bit later. And I've been doing it all my life. But then um, inventing and designing for a commercial market is something different again. You know, it's like, wow, this thing that I've been using all my life, actually, you know what? Other people could probably use this too, and they do. You know, it's it's amazing watching a product that you've designed and you know, and and built through and tweaked and has now reached this level of maturity that other people find as wonderful as you do. It's mm. great, and I love I love that side of things. So when my body can't do the stuff that I do anymore, then my mind will keep active in the designing world. Yeah, yeah, and that, that is a real fear. Like, it is a real fear, and I'm on the younger spectrum, but I still wrestle with that fear, because when you fall in love with something so much, um, I try not to let what I do be me, like, Hattie's not a runner, Hattie loves to run, and I really try to keep a distinction in that moment, but but if you have a risk where you could not do it, um, yeah, that is a fear. So with your sport, I mean, you're fast-tracking your body, I think, through to, jeez, um, I was going to say an earlier grave, but, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? You're fast-tracking your body yeah. through to it wearing out, I, I, I think, anyway. You know, I had knee surgery about five years ago, and up until that point, I ran almost every day. I was a distance runner too. Not the distances mm. that you guys do, but I did triathlons. I was, an, you know, an early adopter of triathlons when they first came in, you know, um, and long distance cycling and all that kind of stuff. And then I had surgery on a knee and the doctor and the physio and everyone said, okay, you've got to stop running because if you keep running, you're going to have to have a knee replacement. Uh, and that was enough. I don't need a knee replacement. I don't want a re- knee replacement. I want all my original mm. body parts. And I, so long as they're able to do, so long as I'm able to ski and drag a sled, then that's fine. But the running, you know, creates that extra angle in the knee and the impact on the ground. And you know what? Um, and this is where my mindset is different to yours. It was a relief. <laughs> I don't have to run anymore. My goodness. <laughs> no, no, oh, wow. No, no. I know for you guys it would be yeah, yeah. total and absolute yeah, disaster. Look, it, like it would. It would be for a period of time, but in some ways, I think fear is something that highlights to you what is really meaningful yeah. in your life and something that you need to work through to get to the other side of. And so for me, realizing that that fear was there has been about really trying to understand like who Hanny is when she's not a runner mm-hmm. um, and to learn to love what I love and also to live in a more compassionate way both for myself and my ability to, to nurture my body into old age but also compassionately in line with like the world outside and for me wilderness is something so precious to me so I feel like that fear kind of just was like an arrow guiding me towards what I needed to to do and to learn about myself yeah it's interesting that your field of running was entirely different to that of Pat Farmer who was the long distance runner that I took from the north I'm not into that (laughs) no but also that um he didn't seem to be so inspired by running through wilderness mm-hmm. it was purely the running that's, um, and that's fine yeah. because you know he's just driven by, by yeah. a different mindset but um I, I would align myself closer to you and your yeah. listenership who who equally love the wilderness as much as you do running yeah and the, this injury that you mentioned at the beginning yes yeah, so like bruised 
all the bones in the forefoot um, from multiple series of multiple errors on my end, but learned a lot. <laughs> um, what it really highlighted to me is a few things that running for me is a mode of transport to explore a landscape and to explore my inner landscape. So I find that I don't need to go the furthest, go the fastest, need to race anymore. It's just not where my heart nor my head is. But the other thing I think I found about running is for me, having grown up with that and swimming before, is it's about the repetitive movement of a body and it's very rhythmic. And as I've been like trying to substitute by jumping in the gym or doing things, I haven't been as settled in my being. And it's not because I can't run. I think it's because I don't have that meditative time every morning. So like just recently jumped back in the swimming pool, God forbid, hateful. But um, but actually what I'm finding now is with that mindset, I'm actually loving it because it is just so repetitive and um, yeah, so like you're right, like you learn so much through fear and through adversity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I am right now. Um, <laughs> it right. makes us stronger. Yeah. Okay. And final final question on my end is, um, I guess like I just want to know, what would you? What's one final thing that you would love to yell to the world? Love to love to tell anyone listening. Um, is there anything in particular? <laughs> Uh, I have this uh, motto, I suppose. It's not. It's in fact, I almost never say it. But in some ways, it's a, a tagline for my for, for who I am and what I do. And it's um, dream big, live bigger, and begin. Okay, I love that. <laughs> yeah, because it's every yeah. step that you need to um, to be the person you've always wanted to be and maybe stymied by. So you know, we've we've all got dreams for sure. Everyone dreams, and some of those dreams are so outlandish. It's like, well, I could never do that. <laughs> but you know what? So live live a bit bigger than than what you thought that dream could be, and just just make a start. Yeah, the failure is in not starting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. yeah, yeah. Oh my god, today has been extraordinary, more than I could have expected. Thank you so my pleasure. much. Um, and I will link up your website, which, by the way, I absolutely love your website. It's just so sexy. I don't Thank know who you. does it, whether you do it. Local crowd. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, really cool. Um, so I'll link that up, and I uh, hope that some people get inspiration from today and want to join you on a trip. I'm already scheming, like, <laughs> yeah, how can I join? <laughs> I'll leave it there. It's awesome. Thanks, Hanny. Really appreciate it. And good luck with the foot. Ah, thanks. Yeah.